Hey, everyone. Before we jump into today's show, a uh, couple of announcements to make. First of all, we have just hit 100,000 downloads as of, uh, I think, yesterday, all right. which is uh Super fun! Thank you very much for that, everyone. It's been it's been a great ride. Um, also, kind of uh, not the best time to to miss a week. So last week, uh, <laughs> we for those of you who actually, <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what we did. Yeah, last week for those of you who pay attention to our feed, we didn't have an episode. Uh, that's totally on me. Uh, it was just because. Uh, I actually started a new job um, last week, a week and a half ago, depending on when this show goes up. Um, and uh, my life, my schedule has been turned a little bit upside down. Uh, I don't suspect that this uh, this new job is going to affect um, you know the the rollout of this podcast, but uh, we'll be we'll be taking it uh, sort of week by week. But uh, for the time being, we're still planning to put a show out every single week. We actually have some amazing guests coming up after this show uh, that we already have booked. Um, so uh, you know, I hope you uh, you tune in for all of that stuff. But with that said, uh, let's jump into the show. Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to Endurance Innovation. And today we're going to go back to basics, and it'll just be Michael and myself, but we're going to talk about some of the fundamental tools and equipment that you really need to get started in triathlon, because I think there's a lot of people out there who are wondering what is actually necessary to get started. Yeah, uh, and this is a question that we've had uh, at least twice that I can remember uh, asked um, formally of the show through, I believe both of them came through Instagram uh, DMs. Uh, and then also, you know, in, in my coaching practice, I get this question a lot. And uh, this is a very common theme. So we wanted to touch on it. And we will mention the the higher end stuff as well, uh, but we're not going to dive into it. As Andrew said, this is primarily a you know, this is kind of what you need to get started and, and still be able to perform at a, at a reasonably high level um, without getting, you know, super nerdy and spending $1,000 on an aerometer. We can definitely do a deep dive on each of the components. Yes. Uh, but I think uh, I think it's it probably would benefit a lot of people just to do the the quick, like, what actually do you need to be competitive? Where will you improve your performance? What's the lowest hanging fruit? Mm -hmm. And I think we can uh, maybe not skim through these, but we can go through them relatively quickly. And to be honest, I wish something, a guide like this existed when I started triathlon because I fortunately had a friend to guide me through it, but um, there was maybe less information available. There was also less tech available uh, than there is now, but uh, certainly having kind of an updated guide would I, I really hope benefit a lot of our listeners. Yeah. Okay. Let's uh, let's jump right in. Uh, and that's, was that, uh, that was an unintentional pun. <laughs> but uh, I was those thinking are always about the best. that when I said deep dive. But uh, I was going <laughs> to let it go. But apparently, you weren't. <laughs> no. No. Uh, absolutely not. Cannot let go. Uh, so yeah. With that. With that clumsy. Uh, clumsy attempt at humor. Let's talk about swimming. Andrew, you're. You know the the joke. The joke around around here is that I don't swim, and it's actually you know a joke on my. I guess at my expense because it it makes me not very good at swimming, as you are. Are probably figuring out. Uh, so why don't you kick this one off as the uh, as the expert as the expert swimmer oh. in the room? 
that's uh, that's setting pretty high bar, I think, for my expertise. Um, Not compared to me, Andrew. <laughs> so I think swimming is is maybe similar in running to some ways where at a quick glance, there's not that much tech involved. Um, but when you start to dive down, definitely it uh, does have a Michael shaking his head right now. I'm sorry. Uh, when you dive down, it, there's there is a bunch of tech buried there. But um, the the fundamental things you see in swimming would be a wetsuit, a swim cap, and goggles. And once you've got that, it's hard to add a lot more equipment. There's no aero helmet to worry about. There's you know no toys that people use in the pool. No fins allowed. Um, but there's definitely a lot of performance that comes from the wetsuit and. Uh, and even the goggles as well are starting to get pretty high tech. Yeah. Um, let's spend a little bit of time on the wetsuit. And this is, uh, listeners, before we started into this episode, I was going to use another swim punt, but I'm, I'm going to try to resist. Uh, we, we realized that that wetsuits are obviously such a such a deep topic with a lot of history and a lot of technology, and they continue to evolve. And so we will, uh, we're going to look for a guest who can speak to the, the design and the construction of them much better than we can. Um, but yeah, the wetsuit is a, you know, it's a, it's a little bit of an equalizer. Um, and if you're even uh, kind of a, an average swimmer or a middling swimmer, uh, a wetsuit can make you a decent swimmer because the biggest, uh, you know, the, the, the most obvious function of a wetsuit is, uh, is warmth. And that's not to be overstated because swimming in cold water for the uninitiated can certainly cause problems. And of course, they're mandatory below a certain threshold, depending on which race you're doing and how long the race is. Uh, you know, look look at your ITU and Ironman rules for that kind of stuff. They're prohibited above a certain temperature as well, which is another no, that's key true. point because they are insulating. And given all our chats about heat transfer in the past, I have actually been overheating coming out of multiple swims where it was just borderline. No, great point. So you you know if you're if you're thinking of wearing a wetsuit or not wearing a wetsuit, make sure you know the the temperature cutoffs for for either end. Um, but temperature regulation aside, the biggest obvious benefit of a wetsuit and the reason why you see people wearing all the the vast majority of people wearing wetsuits as long as they're legal, so right up to that upper threshold, is buoyancy. So um, why is buoyancy important? Uh, it's because, you know, the, uh, water being something like a thousand times more dense than air, the, uh, the hydrodynamic drag is much, much higher than the aerodynamic drag when you're cycling or running. And, you know, we, we spend so much time talking about body position on the bike on this show, body position in the water is even much, even that much more important because of the density changes or the density increase in water, obviously. And so that what the buoyancy of the wetsuit does, the primary thing it allows us to do is float more horizontally. So there's less of that, you know, foot drag in, in less, uh, let's say, capable swimmers uh, in a wetsuit. And that is why it is so much, so much easier to swim uh, faster in a wetsuit uh, than it is without a wetsuit. There's also something to be said about the coating, the, uh, the hydro... Let's see if phobic, I'm trying to get my philic phobic of <laughs> things right. But yeah, the hydrophobic coating on the wetsuit. So it, it is a little bit more slippery through the water, but primarily the, the performance benefit comes from the buoyancy. Yeah. And it's kind of like reducing your frontal area. So basically exactly. you're floating higher. So it's, it's like you're going out of the water. Um, in the extreme end, you'd just be skimming along the surface or hydroplaning. Um, but uh, <laughs> like certainly like my swimming doesn't look like that. But you're probably reducing the CD as well, right? Because you're, you know, you're, you're, extent, you're a much yeah. more streamlined shape through the water as well. The other thing I want to touch on is for people getting into the sport, 
there's a high likelihood that they don't have a strong swimming background. That's typically the area that people are weak. So the extra buoyancy you get, it's also, it's not something I'd rely on for a life preserver, but it does give you that extra little bit of comfort. If you're feeling overwhelmed in the swim and if you just need to roll over on your back and float, a wetsuit makes that easy just so you can catch your breath and so you can regain your composure and continue on. Yeah, that's an excellent point. So uh, I remember when I was when I first started dating my my now wife, we we went swimming and um, we were uh, she she was she was trying to teach me how to float. Now I could swim fairly well, and I think better than her at that point. But uh, I I couldn't float. I could not float on my back, and she she was convinced that that I was just doing it wrong. And no, I wasn't. I was I I ended up being right. I just could not float because I was too <laughs> dense. Like my legs were too heavy. There wasn't enough fat in my lower body that I so I, I couldn't float horizontally my feet would slowly sink and then you know floating without some kind of sculling or kicking was just not possible for me but in a wetsuit to Andrew's point you can even like even the leanest most dense human can float in a wetsuit on his or her back and that is very comforting as a as a kind of like a, a backup plan if, if things go really sideways on you in the swim and to be honest my first swim um it was the first time I'd ever worn a wetsuit in the water. I'd tried it on before, but uh, I was panicking about halfway through the swim. I just felt like I could not breathe. Mm-hmm. And that was a terrible feeling. But having that extra little bit of comfort from the buoyancy, the, the wetsuit was a big help there. Um, so I think there's many, many people who kind of feel that way in their first swims, especially your your nerves are high. There's a lot of adrenaline going. Your heart rate's probably racing. Um, so just having a le- an extra little bit of comfort, I'm sure, is is a great thing for people. Absolutely. So before we turn this into what we said we wouldn't do, uh, a deep dive into one specific element of the tech, which is, I guess, all too easy for us to do, Andrew. Um, maybe we'll we'll leave it with a couple more points on wetsuits, and then we'll we'll move on to some of the other swim tech. The kind that the the you just brought up a couple of really important ones. Um, making sure that you try your wetsuit on before you before your race. You certainly it's definitely one of the most one of the worst things to first try on a race. Like, yeah, you don't want new shoes. Yeah, you don't want like a new bike or a new helmet, but a new wetsuit, especially if you've never worn a wetsuit, that can be disaster. That could be like your race can end in the swim if you've never worn a wetsuit. I mean, if it's a new wetsuit, yeah, it's not ideal. But if you've never worn a wetsuit and you're going to do it on the first time, the race is not the first time to do it and fit is critical. So make sure that, so Mm -hmm. buying a wetsuit online is a really bad idea unless you know exactly how the thing fits because maybe you've bought the same model before um, or you're very, very confident in the fit guide that the manufacturer provides. It's really, really, really a good idea for, especially for first time buyers uh, to, to try one on in a store and buy it in a store. Yeah. And the other thing I would recommend is, looking at sleeveless wetsuits. So that's actually my preference. There's a lot of people who like sleeved wetsuits, but I like the extra shoulder mobility you get from a sleeveless. And I think that can add to the comfort for some people as well, because the the shoulder restriction um, can be a bit of a limiting factor. It can make some people feel uncomfortable, myself included. Slower though, you get you are giving up a little bit of speed, but yes, but comfort is speed, as we've said many times. So you know we'll uh, we'll disagree on this one. Um, even like even the best swimmers, like you know the Lucy Charleses and the Lauren Brandons that we've had on the show, they still wear full sleeved, and they probably have the most to lose from from shoulder restriction. Mm-hmm. All right, well, shall we move on to Let's goggles, perhaps? 
Yeah, so uh, I don't have too much to say about goggles. There's some goggles that'll do like face mapping, like the Magic 5. Uh, I have zero experience with them. They sound like really cool tech because leaky goggles are a huge pain in the ass, especially if it's uh, if it's a cool day and you got water in your goggles and then they oh, fog yeah. up and and that that's then you can't see anything and that's that's kind of a drag and trying to clear water out of your goggles in the middle of a race is is no picnic um so goggles that don't leak are are amazing all other goggle technology is i would say nice to have but that's that's that would be the top you know top bullet point on my list yeah and once again comfort is key here i think just having something that fits to your face um because mm-hmm. i've had a bunch of goggles that would just leak like crazy and i found one style that i i like um i think they're Maybe I have narrow eyes or something, but they're like a kid's model. Um, so, <laughs> Perfect. So they, they seem to work for me, though. And I've used You're probably same... saving a few bucks that way, too. Absolutely, yeah. The kids' um, goggles are cheap. <laughs> so the other thing that I typically use, and I don't see a lot of people doing this, which surprises me, but I found a brand of anti-fog that I like. Mm. And I'll usually apply that before the race because I, I rinse it off, uh, get it relatively clean after applying it so that it's not going to run into my eyes. But um mm-hmm. I've, I've had foggy goggles before, and that's just as bad as leaking goggles where you cannot see a thing. It's, it's no fun to be in that position. So what do you use? What's the brand? I think it's, it's called spit something. Uh, I'll, I'll get it afterwards. No, no, no. It's, um, it's meant for scuba goggles, but, um, uh, we can post it on the, the show notes. So there was, there was one brand I liked before it was uh, sphere, but I couldn't seem to find theirs. Um, and to be honest, it takes so long to go through a bottle of this that uh, that I, I think they may have discontinued and probably moved on to like three different <laughs> generations of <laughs> anti-fog. Yeah. Uh, but uh, no, the other tech that I've seen recently, I think Roka's pushing the boundaries a little bit. They've got kind of a refraction in their goggles so that you can see a little bit further forward. Hmm. Um, and it's a little bit more streamlined to the face. But I think these are such marginal gains that, uh, well, it's good to advertise. The reality is you're not adding that much drag from the the actual form of the goggles. Um, but with the refraction, I can see the argument that you don't have to lift your head as much, which might keep you more streamlined in the water. Mm-hmm. But um, at an absolute minimum, find goggles that you like, find goggles that are comfortable. Um, I don't really find that the tinting is critical some people like it if it's a sunny day and you're swimming into the into the sun uh, or at least breathing into the sun then that can be a bit of a challenge but um yeah find find a pair you like and stick with it and that's that's my recommendation yeah there's also i mean it's worth mentioning the form uh, goggles the ones that have the the heads up mm. display and then i think they also have some uh some internal like electronics for i don't think they just talk to your garmin there's there's like you know there's some swim metric intelligence built into them i have never tried them so i don't know very much about them at all um i don't so i i just mentioned them here for sort of for completeness because they're kind of a cool tech but they would definitely be in the kind of fun to have of questionable utility in in the swim, uh, maybe in training, maybe probably not so much in racing. Um, yeah, and a fundamental challenge with any kind of data that you're gathering during the swim is that kind of signal does not broadcast far underwater, like mm-hmm. on the order of millimeters. So there's basically no transmission, any GPS signals, things like that are really challenging. So your watch will likely be, um, if you use a watch, which we can talk about later, uh, mm-hmm. will likely be way off in terms of GPS trace. So don't expect a whole lot of accuracy. Don't expect your distance to be perfect. There's smoothing that some companies use, but uh, in reality, water sucks for <laughs> any signal transmission. Yeah, and that's a good point. So we'll we'll get about, we'll we'll talk about watches for sure because I think watches are essential in other sports, but in swimming in in training they're not bad, in racing they're of questionable utility because 
they, as Andrew said, the the accuracy is pretty poor, and you have to wonder what sort of you know actionable information you're getting in the middle of a swim, uh, in a race that you can you know you can make decisions and, and do something, change something based on what your watch is telling you. So, you know, there's vibration alerts and there's all sorts of stuff. But I think for for even for somebody like me who really likes data, I find that that's more noise than, than you know, usefulness uh, in the swim leg of a race. Like I said, in training, it's a different story. And obviously in training, you want to capture the data. Uh, but in racing, the data quality is so poor outdoors that it's, you know, it's almost a watch. And then the other kind of side note, the interaction between watches and wetsuits is it's it's really hard to pull off a wetsuit sleeve over your watch. So there's an extra element of difficulty in uh, in in, trans, in T1 if you're if you're going to wear a watch, you got to do something about it. Unless you have a sleeveless wetsuit. That's true. Unless you have a sleeveless wetsuit, that's one of the things I miss about the uh, the old school Garmin watches that had the quick release, the, like the the quarter turn quick release strap, because then you could take off the uh, you could take off the the watch part and then just leave the strap on, and the strap didn't really didn't have too much height, and you could easily pull a sleeve. Uh, hmm. Off of the uh, off of the the watch, and it wasn't it wasn't a big deal. But uh, those are those days are gone. I know we're kind of we're dragging this on a little bit, but uh, we should probably move on to cycling. But one quick tip that I do is um, I often find my ankles are kind of where I get stuck when I'm pulling the wetsuit off my legs. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I actually trim the the legs up a couple centimeters higher, um, and that just gives you the extra diameter, basically, uh, where it's it's meant to hold around your calves instead of right around your ankles. And I think you lose such minimal amounts of flotation, but uh, the time you can make up in transition for not hopping around on one foot, trying to get your wetsuit off, that's uh, that's probably the bigger win. Yeah, that's good advice. I do I do the same thing. And it, you can also, you know, if you're going to, you can also trim them at a bit of an angle, leave mo- more material over the shin, which is the part that's going to be in the water always, and basically cut up towards, you know, if you're almost like a, make a point at the lower calf, you see, you see a lot of pros will do this, and because that because usually it gets stuck around your heel, so it gives you a little bit more heel clearance, and you're losing, you know, you're you're cutting away material that at, probably adds the least, except for maybe your sleeves on your arms to your buoyancy anyway. So, oh, so you admit sleeves don't add much buoyancy? <laughs> That's not much, no, because they have to be thin for for their, you know, buoyancy is proportional to thickness, and they have to be thin for mobility. So yeah, they don't add much. I agree. So sleeveless do, is the way to go. Add some. Nah. <laughs> Just look at look at the top of the field. Who's swimming in sleeveless? Exactly right, no one, let's, Andrew. Let's let's leave this before I get completely <laughs> proven wrong. All okay, right, let's so talk about cycling. Yeah, yeah, we've come out of the swim. We're running onto the bike. Um, well, running to the bike. But um, what I would say is actually transition. Um, and we haven't really talked about this beforehand, but uh, Transition is somewhere that I think there's a lot to be gained and practicing your transition. And it doesn't matter what you do, but practice it. And that's something that so many people don't do. Like if you're comfortable trying a flying mount, you can practice that. Um, There's, you'll often see people with elastics that hold their shoes in place so that they can have them clipped into the pedals. That's something else you can try, but just practice, practice, practice. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to be honest, like go through the layout, set it up in the order you use it in your transition area. If you have room, um, Ironman races don't allow that, but, uh, cause you've got everything in a bag, but, um, yeah, I think there's, there's a lot that can be gained there. And, you know, if you save 10 or 15 seconds in transition, it's a lot to run 10 seconds out of someone. 
So it's uh, definitely makes a difference, especially in a short course race. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. But let's stick to the you know the uh, the the equipment kind of side of the show and talk about what's what's is absolutely essential on the bike, and then we'll work towards things that are you know much less essential. Let's start with bikes themselves. Um, road bike or tri bike or time trial bike, Andrew. Well, I've always had a tri bike for triathlons, uh, but I don't think you need to spend a lot of money to necessarily get something that's uh, that's super high end. So you can get ninety five percent of the performance getting an entry level bike. And my first mm-hmm. bike was a P two, uh, Cervelo P two, which is a phenomenal performer. And I know that uh, people have won, like pro athletes have won races on a, on P twos. So it's not like they're lacking in performance at all. Um, and to be honest, there was more adjustability on that bike than there has been on some of the more expensive bikes that I've looked at. So, mm-hmm. um, so I think if you're going to buy a new bike, um, something like that is not a bad buy, but at the same time, if you already have a road bike, uh, clip on aero bars, get most of the, the performance benefit. There's a little bit of a difference in geometry with the hip angle, uh, and the, the seat post angle, but I think you get most of it with the clip on aero bars and then, you get almost all the way there with the uh, with the entry level tri bike. Yeah, I agree with you a hundred percent on the entry level tri bike. Especially modern entry level tri bikes are very very good. Uh, we've talked about this before, um, and you're you're really not giving up that much. They just don't have as much storage integration. I think that's my that's that's kind of where I'm landing on them these days. Is that there's there's less storage there's much less storage integration in a in an entry level bike. But what they lose in storage integration, uh, and you you po- you pointed this out, they make up in the fact that usually the front ends, the cockpits are not fully integrated, so they don't look as as sexy and clean. But they have you know much better uh, adjustability, um, specifically in the in the in the sense that you can pick your own stem length and. Um, mm-hmm. this is something that, uh, we, uh, we probably will talk about a little in another episode, but, uh, my kind of evolution of bike fit, the way that I think about it is, is getting to the point where I really want to go back to the long and low, or not necessarily lo- low, I'll take that back the long, <laughs> but not low. I'm just stuck in my head, the long and low, um, long, but not low, uh, position of, uh, some of the, well, they used to be long and low, but long and high is where I want to be. So I want bike manufacturers to start making long frames again, um, and uh, uh, but and having being able to put your own stem on a on a on an entry level bike is really great because you know I may want to ride one with 120, 130 millimeters, not because I want to look cool, but because I want to achieve the kind of fit coordinates that I want for aerodynamic advantage, which is hard to do when you have uh, a front end with a fixed with a fixed stem like sure you have pretty good adjustment at the pads maybe on on some bikes not others but uh you know if you can if you can put your own stem on and then adjust the pad uh the reach of the pads then you can you can kind of double dip and really get a long position if that's if that's what you're after um as far as road bike versus tri bike we actually did an episode on this in the you know in the very distant past of endurance innovation it's deep in the vault i think it was one of our first 10 episodes um but uh I should listen to it again and see if my opinion has changed because it's been two years and lots of my opinion on many things has changed. Uh, But uh, yeah, you can definitely get, you can definitely get very close um, with, uh, with a road bike with clip on bars. Who was the U S female athlete who absolutely dominated on that, on that setup? Oh yeah. She was in the Olympics. I'm totally strong. Taylor Nib. Taylor Nib. Yes. Taylor Nib. Thanks. Yeah. And she, she crushed it at the, at the PTO, 
um, thing that they did. Uh, my memory sucks. <laughs> Whatever that was, the championship? No, that wasn't the championship. It was the... It was the seventy point three worlds. I think she was. No, no, no. Well, she did. She did well there, but she also there was the 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 world shootout where there was like Team Europe, Team International, Team USA. Oh, the Collins Cup. Collins Cup. Yeah, so she she crushed it at the cup as well. She, I think she had the fastest bike split on the day on that on that like Franken bike. And um, I think the only point I would like to make is if you want a one you know like the one bike to rule them all, it's a little bit tricky because your setup. Uh, your optimal setup for for triathlon and your optimal setup for road are fair are quite different. So what I've seen people do, and I, I promise I'll get off this train soon. But what I've seen people do is have um, diff- so they ha- they'll have like clip on arrow bars that are set up in a specific way, and they'll also have different saddle seat post combinations. So they'll have a dedicated seat post with a different saddle that is that might be. Yeah, you know, they might have like a, a rear offset seat post for a road position, and then they'll actually have a forward offset seat post for their tri position. And there used to be there's this this company called Redshift. They used to make seat posts that could almost like switch from one to the other. It was kind of a cool design, kind of mm-hmm. like a parallelogram uh, design at the right bef- right below the seat clamp, which was kind of cool, which would allow you to go back 20, 20 millimeters, I think, or something like that, and then forward 20 millimeters. So a range of 40 millimeters in, this, in the saddle, which of course changes your effective seat tube angle, which is what you want. So it's possible, but it takes a lot of work. Um, so if you've only got room or, or, or a budget for one bike, uh, you can totally make it work, but it, it requires it requires work. So wheels and tires. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Wheels and tires. Um, again. Oh man, it's so hard to keep this episode short. Uh, okay. Here's my here's my not hot take on wheels and tires. Aside from the kind of the 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 stuff that Soar is making, which by the way, sidebar, promise this. Well, no, I can't make that promise. It's not gonna be my last sidebar. I actually had I had an opportunity to see them because we did some aero testing with uh, Tamara Jewett and uh, Nick Van Bearden of Soar came out too, and uh, she had some of her wheels really really freaking cool wheels folks i've never seen anything like this um i still haven't tested them so i don't know i can't speak from personal experience but just like the technology is radically different than anything else that's out there whether that's you know gonna change the world of of wheels i can't tell you but it's it's different uh but otherwise eh, everything's converged to the point where like if you can run a disc you should run a disc um some discs are, are definitely a little bit faster than others uh, you know, fronts are all depending depend on uh, the depth of the front wheel. Really, just depends on how comfortable you are handling it and what the wind conditions are. Um, newer newer wheels are definitely better. So uh, I would stay away from the kind of like the 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 now quite um, dated V profile rims. So mm-hmm. these are the rims with kind of a sharp point at the at the trailing edge. Um, although there's still some that get sold. So like lightweight wheels out of out of um, they're from the same town in Germany that where Interbike is. The name of the town escapes me now. Friedrichshafen. Yes, Friedrichshafen. So they're made there, and they're still like super popular. They're insanely expensive. They're obviously super lightweight, but they still have that V-shaped profile, which is bizarre because I mean that that the world's moved on. I don't know, like fifteen years ago from that profile. But uh, yeah, uh, wheels are important, but uh, they're also a very expensive way to buy speed. Yeah, and I would say that that's purely what you're doing. Like at that point, you're buying speed. It's not. Um, it's not necessary to do particularly well. There's still lots of fast people with, with regular, uh, yeah. entry level wheels. So the other thing to consider is I've actually seen some companies that do race day wheel rentals, 
Um, mm-hmm. I'm kind of mixed on that because I would prefer to have some experience riding them because if you get a windy day, it's not the best idea. But at the same time, it could be a fairly cost-effective way to to get that speed. So it might be something worth considering um, if you're if if that's available at your particular race. Yeah, and then on the the exact opposite you know side of the spectrum, tires are an exceptionally cost-effective and mm-hmm. safe way to buy speed, right? So we've talked about coefficient of rolling resistance on the show. I'm still looking for the you know. Uh, a high-profile person to talk about CRR. We've kind of danced around the issue a few times, but um, there is a faster rolling tire, like let's say the the GP, the Continental GP five thousand, uh, is going to be is going to make everybody faster. There are no you know kind of there are no it depends here. If you're running that tire versus kind of like the tire that probably came on your bike, which you know best case scenario was a middle of the road kind of tire, you're going to be faster if you go twenty mm-hmm. kilometers an hour or forty five kilometers an hour. Uh, if you weigh, you know, 100 kilos or 50 kilos, or it doesn't matter, you're going to go faster on this tire. So, uh, and then, you know, a, a tire, if you're paying full freight for a GP5000 is around 100, you know, Canadian dollars. I think the TLs, the tubeless are a little bit more. They just came out with a hookless. Anyway, that's not a continental ad. If you buy a fast tire and the TL, the, the Conti, the Conti 5000 is just a good one. Um, you're going to be, you're going to be faster. So it's probably the first upgrade that I would make to an otherwise stock bike is to repl- it is for race day to replace uh, to replace its tires because that is definitely definitely free speed. It's actually fairly inexpensive free speed. And I would say a little bonus to that too is maybe invest ten or fifteen bucks in a <clears throat> in a halfway decent uh, tire pressure gauge. And if you head over to the Flow Cycling webpage, um, I know they've done a lot of work on optimizing pressure and rolling resistance. So you can kind of look mm-hmm. up what the the best range for your your tire size and your pressure would be. Yeah, and what Flow will do is they'll show you like the. They'll they'll uh, change their numbers based on the conditions of the pavement, which is also quite important. Like if you're on mm-hmm. brand new tarmac, it's one value, and if you're on like bumpy chip seal, it's another value. And the other way to uh, improve your rolling resistance, folks, unless you're running tubeless, is to use latex tubes. Mm-hmm. Um, in Canada, they're like fifteen to twenty Canadian dollars uh, per per tube. Um, whether or not they're more you know, puncture resistant. I don't know. I don't know that there's very good data on that, but uh, they're definitely roll a little bit faster. They save you, I think, a watt per um, at 30 kilometers an hour. It's something like a watt per uh, per wheel, which, you know, you may sneeze at, but uh, two watts is not nothing given that it basically costs you very little to, uh, uh, to get that speed. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, other bike components or other, other things on the bike leg that are important. So I'd say helmet and Tri suit, and then here's the uh, um, kind of the the non tangible or less tangible thing is position. Yeah, so this stuff we've talked about a lot, and so I think uh, suffice to say in this show uh, they make a difference. Uh, the generally speaking, like if we're going to make generalizations, they make a difference, but they're individual, right? So there are some. There are, the, depending on the person, some suits may test faster than others, some helmets may test faster than others. But if we're going to generalize, uh, air, dedicated aero helmets are faster than road helmets in almost every scenario. There's some comfort implications there because they're heavier and they're less well vented. So you have to kind of, you know, uh, pick and choose there. Uh, how much of a difference? It's not going to probably, unless you're at the very pointy end, win you the race or lose you the race, but it will save you a bit of time on the bike. Um, you know, sleeve tri suits. 
with some aerodynamic. I think you know what I don't even want to talk about tri suits because there's so much. There's so many claims out there, just like with anything else. But uh, we have actually tested a bunch of suits, uh, just using our field tests, and there is quite a range. And some tend to do better than others. We have one that always tends, always tests pretty fast. I'm not going to say which one right now. And it's not in production anymore. <laughs> and no one makes it anymore. That's right. It's uh, it, it doesn't exist. Well, it exists in my closet. Um, <laughs> and uh, but uh, but yeah, they, they definitely make a difference. But it's it's very hard to parse which ones are faster unless you do unless you test. Yeah. Um, Same with position. Same with position. And I would say like getting a good bike fit is crucial when you're starting out in the sport because it'll add so much to comfort. It'll give you a better run because you're, um, you're more comfortable on the bike. So there's like, that's another, uh, very good price performer. Um, so definitely invest in, in a proper bike fit. Absolutely. Um, as far as data goes, uh, the order that I would invest in things would be uh, heart rate monitor first, then single-sided power meter. Um, and if you want to go all out, you could get dual power meter. Um, and after that, you could look at aero sensors. Uh, I would say, in my opinion, it's not worth going above Altegra components. Uh, Durace just tends to be twice the price, but 5% better. Um, mm-hmm. So... It's and it, it comes down to budget. Like I think with a heart rate monitor, you can do some pretty good training. Single sided power meter, you can do almost everything you need to do. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, um, just taking one step backwards, you need some device to record all of that. Mm, um, yes. And so you can you can talk about whether or not you just want a multi sport watch, which will capture swim, bike, and run, um, or if you want to dedicate a bike computer. I think definitely the watch is a must because you you really need that for running anyway. So that's the first stop. Um, and then if, but if you, if you end up referring to it frequently when you're, when you're riding, it's not, it's just, you know, ergonomically inconvenient to look at your watch. So getting a bike computer is a really nice thing to do. Uh, but it's more of like, it's more of a nice to have rather than a must in terms of measuring intensity on the bike, which is what Andrew was, was hinting at when he was talking about heart rate versus power. Um, you know, this must be said, I think all the listeners to this show probably appreciate the fact, but speed is a terrible measure of intensity on the bike, (laughs) unless you're on the velodrome, right? In which case it's very directly proportional. Um, or unless you're, you're kind of repeating the same course over and over again under the same conditions, there's just too many things that affect bike speed. Um, so yeah, power is king. Power is the gold standard of intensity. Heart rate is a very useful metric on the bike, I believe. Uh, we've sort of moved, some people have moved away from heart rate with the advent of power or with the mass adoption of power. But I do agree with you that heart rate is super useful. And uh, maybe the reason you put it above power is just because it's a it's a much more cost effective entry point. Mm-hmm. Um, and I totally agree. Like if you're if 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 you're on a budget, then getting heart rate is much better than having nothing. But getting single sided power is is much better than having just just heart rate. So the way that I would coach, I would use you know power as a primary metric with heart rate as a secondary metric, um, because there's a, the the interplay between power and heart rate does tell tell us a lot potentially. Um, and heart rate, even in the absence of power, can, can can also give us quite a bit of information. And you mentioned bike computers. So to be honest, I don't typically ride with a head unit. I'll almost always hmm. refer to my watch. And it's it's not something I've ever, well, I mean, it was mostly a budget thing early on. And then I just got used to using my watch. And the watches have become so good that you can get they have. basically everything you need. And yeah, it just it does the trick for me. So I've never really needed to to invest in a, a separate head unit. It's really just a matter. I mean, unless you get really like picky about stuff, it's really just a matter of 
of having access to the information easily at a glance mm -hmm. rather than like, oh, having to turn your wrist. So it's a very like triathlon problem, you know, like it's, it's so minor that I wouldn't, I wouldn't even, I wouldn't even list it, but, uh, it's definitely, it's uh, yeah, a head unit or a dedicated by computers is nice to have much, very much nice to have. And certainly not, not necessary. Mm -hmm. All right. Have we covered everything for bikes? Do you think? Uh, yeah, you mentioned aero sensors. We've not, we've talked about them at length. Uh, they are, they're a very niche product and I still, mm -hmm. you know, just, just to put one point, do like a one sentence summary of it is they are not useful for the average consumer at this point. That's all I have to say about them. Not, there's just not yeah. enough utility there yet, maybe in a year or two. Uh, but right now, unless you're very, like, unless you're a massive keener, investing a thousand plus dollars in an aero sensor is not the best place to park your money unless you're made of it and want to experiment. In which case you're not listening to this episode because you've already bought everything. That's right. So the 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 one comment I'll make with the aero sensor is that, uh, and very similar to bike fit, I still think in terms of investing, you know, the raw money, it's it's probably a better payoff than a lot of other investments. And it all comes down to body position because your body position is really what drives a lot of the aerodynamics. Yep. It's a way to get a better body position, but really it makes more sense for a club to buy a an aero sensor rather than an individual. Uh, and that way it can be used. And you have one person who's an expert, relatively speaking, an expert in the, the data acquisition and analysis. Yeah, it's that expertise that that I think isn't you know it's the that that is currently required. I mean, it's always going to be required, but maybe at some point it's going to be baked into the the software or the hardware, which it isn't yet. Mm -hmm. So at this point, yeah, it's it's not something that that you know a, a recreational triathlete can pick up from their store and then and just use out of the box. It, it, there's a there's quite a steep learning curve, and there's a lot of you know, you, there's a lot of experimental design that you, that has to go into it, even if you have one of these sensors. But mm -hmm. anyway, we've 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 talked a lot about aero sensors, folks. If you if you're interested, there's like probably a half dozen episodes that we where we do some kind of dive into them, and probably the rest of the episodes at least mention some kind of aerodynamic reference. <laughs> yes, for sure. Um, okay, we're we're ticking right along. Let's let's talk about running. Running's running's interesting because running is like as as you mentioned. Uh, when you're talking about swimming, Andrew, is it's one of those sports where potentially you don't need anything. You just need running shoes, right? And then we can talk about what 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 constitutes a running shoe. But really, I you know some people will run barefoot, and if that's what they want to do. That's good for them. But uh, there's really not very much that you need to start running. But you can definitely still get uh, get into the trap of buying all the gizmos and gadgets. So one thing that I will say actually ties in closely to some of the other sports is uh, a number belt. Um, it's a very mm. small investment and that's something that can actually make you more comfortable when you're running because you don't have to pin a number onto your back. Uh, it can improve aerodynamics on the bike because you don't have to pin a number on your back. And it's something that's, um, yeah, it's, it's just a, like it's 10 or $15 investment. It's pretty easy to use, but, uh, it's, it's something that, um, I think is is a wise investment that a lot of people forget about. Yeah, on the subject of the number belt, so so this has been my like this stupid pet peeve of mine because uh, it's really silly. But uh, read the rules of your race, yes. and if you don't need your your number your bib on your bike, don't wear it. Because and I know Andrew, you've said this a bunch of times. Anytime you have something that's flapping in the breeze, it's not very aerodynamic. And I don't care how careful you are with your number; it's probably gonna if it's attached to a belt just by the top of the uh, the bib, it's gonna end up flapping, you know, on top of your butt 
uh, when you're riding your bike. And that's just not very good for, for aero drag. <laughs> so if you don't need to wear it, just don't put it on, put it on in the run, you know, clip on, clip that number belt on when you're, when you're heading out of T2. So this is kind of a, maybe not something I'd recommend, but just a funny story. But I remember doing a race where it was required that you had the number belt on during the, the bike. So someone took their number and completely rolled it up and had the, the belt stashed in front of their waist. So huh. they wore it. <laughs> it wasn't useful yeah. at all, but they, they obeyed the letter of the rule. Um, so it was uh, a creative way of addressing. Was that someone you? <laughs> I was actually disappointed that I wasn't the one who thought of that. <laughs> yeah okay fair enough um yeah so like along the along the number belt uh you know in that number belt category i think elastic laces on your running yes. shoes are a really good idea um they are you know tying your shoelaces takes a lot of time and again this is more of an issue with if you're doing an iron man be comfortable mm-hmm. although elastic laces can be when set up correctly they can be quite comfortable uh but in short course yeah i mean tying your shoelaces is a silly way to spend your time in a short course race mm-hmm. so uh you know elastic laces cost anywhere i've seen them for like five bucks on amazon you know usually they're around 10 or 15 or 20 if you want to get super fancy but again a very fast way to buy speed in the sport yeah absolutely i think it's it's a great investment good uh cost per performance metric Mm-hmm, absolutely. So on the run, um, let's let's talk about the run itself. Uh, we've touched on the the watch. So in on the run, there's really you know the watch is sort of your whatever your choice of watch is. It's probably the um, the best way to collect your data. Um, you know the modern modern multi sport watches from you know Garmin or Polar or Sunto. Wahoo has a watch now. I think it's called a Rally. Um, they they all are are quite good. I've got some experience with Sunto, and I have a lot of experience with Garmin. And it just really depends on which ecosystem you want to belong to. But they they will all do the you know the minimum required. I think Garmin's probably the most feature rich. Um, it's not without its drawbacks, obviously. And it's, you know, the, the reason I'm talking about it is because it's the one that I have the most experience with, but they'll, uh, they'll all do a, a fair job of, uh, of keeping track of your, of your key metrics, uh, while you're running. And at a minimum, I would say the key metrics would be pace and heart rate and anything above that is kind mm-hmm. of fluff. Um, like having, fluff. having your, uh, like your distance is great. If they can do elevation, that can kind of be useful, but the grade—sorry, uh, I mean grade instead of elevation—the the grade is usually so slow to update that it doesn't really mean anything. And by the time it's updated on your watch, you know, <laughs> you know, you've gone up a hill. So yeah, um, it's it's some um, it's not something that I look at. Um, heart rate and pace for sure. I don't. Uh, one piece of advice I, I often give to folks is. Uh, don't use instantaneous pace because it is just way too stochastic, especially if you have any kind of GPS blocking or affecting features like trees mm-hmm. or buildings or bridges. Uh, so I like to set up my pace as a, as a lap pace and then I'll have an uh, the auto lap feature enabled. So then, you know, I, I'll auto lap my Garmin at one kilometer intervals so i my lap pace is you know early on in that kilometer is pretty it's pretty sensitive later on in the kilometer is less sensitive but i get a i get a kind of a a snapshot of what my pace is but whereas if i'm using instantaneous pace then there's a lot of variation and if you're using pace on your watch to guide your effort 
you get you can you know it's a control system problem you start to you start to overcompensate like it says oh it's i'm running way too fast so i slow down a lot oh and like and now i'm running really slow so i speed up a lot it's not a good way to pace so it's a it's 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 a pit it's a very common pitfall especially with newer uh runners and triathletes that's that's easily avoided by just using lap pace yeah. So aside from that, I'd say there's nothing really that will contribute that much to a faster run. There's a lot of little things that you can do. Um, and if you're on a long race, like another little thing you could do is potentially carry nutrition with you. It's not something I do, but I know there's a lot of people um, like Lionel Sanders who carry a bottle or carry a, a running belt. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like it personally, but um, but lots of people seem to. Yeah, I think I am a fan of carrying nutrition. I have uh, I've raced with these these packs for a long time. They're they're made by Orange Mud, a U.S. company, uh, and they just use a regular bike bottle. You kind of wear it uh, high up on your uh, high up on your back. Um, you know, it is it is a little bit of a personal preference, as Andrew says. I think you know lots of folks do very well just on with on course nutrition. Um, so that's if you you know. If you prefer to carry something with you, you can. Uh, the other technology that's worth mentioning are um, running power meters. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Stride is definitely the biggest one in the market right now. Um, it's reasonably cost effective uh, and it can be useful. And I've used one. I was an early adopter and I still have my original second generation foot pod from, oh, I don't know how long it's been. It's still going strong. So kudos, kudos to Stride for making a very durable product. Uh, the utility of the data is kind of iffy. You know, there's lots of people who swear by them. And certainly if you are, uh, if you're doing kind of, you know, the, the intensity that, that most of us are doing in even short course, you know, you're not doing any sprinting. Um, the utility, the, the accuracy of the data is pretty good. Although I've heard, and this is secondhand accounts. So, you know, don't, don't send me hate mail stride users that at, at high intensities or for some athletes, it's not very accurate at higher paces. Um, and it's useful in the sense that if you have uh, undulating terrain or if it's not a flat course, using power for pacing is quite is, is more effective than than pace for pacing because your you know your your effort your power is is going to change with uh, with the terrain elevation and it's hard to gauge that off of pace alone and so that's the value that's the obvious value of the stride. Um, I've used it to pace hillier efforts in the past. So it does have some utility. Is it essential? Absolutely not. Like it's definitely one of those like nice to have things. And to be perfectly honest, and again, I'm not a power user of the stride. I probably use it on, you know, 10% of my workouts and maybe 20% of my races, 25% of my races. So it's, uh, it's, it's, it's useful, but it's not essential. Yeah. And I mean, there's certainly plenty, plenty of pros out there who are doing quite well without using it. Uh, whereas a lot of the other equipment we talked about, I think there are some pros who don't use power meters or at least don't pace off of power meters, but it's very on the bike. You mean? Yeah. Yeah. For, um, uh, yeah, for their bike equipment, but it's very, uh, few and far between. And Tamara Jewett is one of those people actually, but, uh, the vast majority of people tend to use power for pacing. And I think it's a much more valuable tool there. Um, but for running, like for so many people, it just comes down to feel, um, and yeah. you get that feel by practicing. So, um, well, I think Tamara also said that she does use power for pacing, especially in, you know, for workouts and in races, it just sometimes the race conditions or the, you know, the, that's the, 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 the situation that she's in, you know, make her 
override what her power is telling her or her power pacing plan is telling. And that's that's more of a pro specific problem where they have yeah. to follow the pack, um, even though you're not that's drafting. Right. But there's there's definitely some benefit for being in a small pack that's uh, legally spaced out. Um, so right. yeah, different different race dynamics for the pros to worry about, but for sure. One thing I want to mention about heart rate, um, there are uh, obviously lots of different ways of collecting heart rate. There's a traditional belt, uh, and then there's a, a oh, this is good. almost all, yeah, almost all uh, modern wearables will have uh, optical sensors. And even as far as you know, as far as I know, and I have the latest. Uh, I don't have the latest anymore. I think the latest Garmin optical sensor is newer than my 945. So I have a Garmin 945, which is. You know, about three years old now, um, and uh, they've come out with a 945 LTE, which I be- I don't know this for sure because I should have read this before doing this, but I think the optical sensor on it is updated, so maybe it's one generation newer. Um, but uh, optical sensors are nowhere near as good mm-hmm. as heart rate straps. So uh, if you want to do like nerdy analysis, like the HR, like heart rate variability, I mean heart rate variability within a workout is dodgy always, but um, forget trying to do it with an optical sensor. That's that's not that's not going to happen, um, and even just just heart rate average, which is what a heart rate reading is, is not is not nearly as reliable on uh, on an optical sensor. It does lag, um, and also for some people, it's just not effective. So for me, and I'm a fairly light skinned and and not a very hairy individual, uh, kind of like so skin skin color and You're and hairiness. Magic out of radio. I know <laughs> it's true. Yeah, I, I held my arm up for the camera, folks. Um, but you'll have to just take my word for it. Um, and uh, for me, optical heart rate, even on this fairly modern sensor, is a 50-50 proposition. So sometimes it works, and sometimes it's way off. Um, and I've had this problem with every single generation. So whatever, so all the algorithm improvements and all the hardware improvements that at least Garmin... Uh, I've also used a Sunto with the same kind of effect. Sunto was even worse. Um, all of these improvements, they've not, they've not brought the accuracy of uh of of a chest strap now the chest strap for me is not foolproof either sometimes you get nonsense data from chest straps but that's maybe you know less than 10 percent versus 50 percent yeah and i remember the first time i wore an optical heart rate monitor thinking like oh this is going to be so much better i don't have to wear that stupid chest strap and then the data came back yeah. and it was useless so it's complete nonsense yeah, it's yeah. uh because quite often you get so many movement artifacts like that basically the sensor is trying to distinguish your like slight changes in the reflected light um, to basically determine your um, the pulsations in the blood flow. But uh, there's all this noise when your watch is bouncing around and when your skin is jiggling and your muscles are moving and contracting and releasing. And there's mm-hmm. even weird artifacts that happen um, if you have a wrist-based optical heart rate monitor and you're holding onto your handlebars, you're restricting blood flow through your hands, which limits the, mm-hmm. uh, the strength of the signal coming back to the optical heart rate monitor. So um, yeah, many, many problems to it. Some are related to the technology, some are just related to the <laughs> to physiology um, and the changes in blood flow. So I think it's, it's a neat technology. It's really useful for um, more fitness trackers than hardcore training aids, but uh, um, but certainly like a, a strap is the best way to go in my opinion. Yeah. And I think, I mean, if we're going to make a, a little bit more of a finer distinction here, I think it, it's, it is individually dependent. I think on the, on the whole, on the population level, a strap is far more accurate, but I've worked with athletes who have had excellent accuracy from, from wrist-based 
optical sensors. So there is a lot of, you know, maybe their their arteries are just closer to the skin and maybe mine are further away from the skin, or maybe they just, the way their watch sits, and I've adjusted my watch a thousand times, I still can't get it to work that well, but maybe the way that they're kind of like the structure, their bone structure allows their watch to sit in a way that, that you know, perfectly matches where this artery passes underneath the skin, whereas mine is maybe slightly shifted. It's, I don't know what the reason is, but it's, it's worth experimenting with. But um, if you are looking for high quality heart rate data, which you may not be that important to you, uh, then it's, it's hard to get away from the chest strap. Um, some straps are better than others, but uh, they'll almost always, all of them will almost always outperform and substantially outperform uh, optical sensors. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, that was definitely a full episode. Is there anything else that you want to touch on before we wrap things up? Yeah, I mean, there's other stuff that we've talked about, like the core sensor that has that's super fun to work with and has definitely some utility in in specific <laughs> contexts. Not an entry level tool, I'd say. Not an entry level tool. No, I would chalk that up with like the aero sensors, although it costs like you know a fraction of an aero sensor. Yeah, it's definitely not an entry level tool. So there's lots of ways, folks, that. Uh, we didn't talk about running shoes either because there's all sorts of interesting tech in running shoes, but we're also trying to get a, an expert to speak to, mm-hmm. you know, the modern plated um, hyper bouncy foam shoes that everyone's raving about. Um, who wrote a paper on the, on the subject. Uh, thank you, Mike Lynn, for, for recommending this individual. I, I got to get in touch with him. Uh, I think we'll save that for, for a proper, thorough expert-led discussion yes yeah and to be honest like so much has changed in the last couple of years with shoe technology it was kind of stagnant for a while and then it just kind of all of a sudden got kicked into high gear yeah thank you nike for you know spurring (laughs) spurring that kind of innovation cold war of running shoes i guess yeah exactly uh yeah so I, i i don't have anything else to add i mean um we can do you know, we can we can definitely take little little side paths from any one of the topics we talked about today. So, listeners, if you want us to explore any of them in greater detail, uh, if you want us to talk about heart rate monitors for an hour, if you want us to talk about wetsuits for an hour, which we should probably do, um, <laughs> then uh, then send us a note, and we'll uh, we'll be happy to uh, you know either if we have the expertise in house uh, cover it or or get somebody who is an expert to uh, help us do that. Absolutely. I think, uh, well, I hope we'll get lots of requests related to that. Yeah. And with that, uh, we thank you as always for uh, taking the time to uh, listen to us talk about stuff that's interesting for us and hopefully interesting for you as well. Uh, If you do find it interesting, tell a friend, give us uh, a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, and uh, also consider supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash endurance innovation. Thanks everyone. Are we at 100,000? We're so close. Oh, we're over 100,000. Woo! All right.